This is the Food Factor Podcast, the show that talks about the connection between your health and what you eat or don't eat. I'm your host, Stephanie Mahachek, clinical nutritionist, health coach, science nerd, perma student, and mother of four. I love dogs, babies, and most of all, talking about all things health, wellness, and the weirdness of the human body. Thank you for being here. Well, hello. Thank you for being here today, pressing play, and hopefully doing something productive while you listen to some nutrition information. I am, again, Stephanie Mahachek, and I want to say, first of all, thank you, everybody, for your comments and sharing the podcast and promoting it. It's really been a cool experience for me to see how just kind of blabbing into a microphone for a couple of minutes each week has... um, been beneficial for certain people. So I really appreciate hearing that feedback. And I love and thank you so much people who have reviewed the podcast and subscribed and shared it with friends and talked about it on social media. I really appreciate that. It's really, um, it's really cool to see. And I'm very, very grateful for all of you doing that. So today, this is actually the 10th episode. Yay. I mean, I don't know if you, if you can believe it or not, I can't believe it, but 10 episodes, that's, it's, it's been a journey so far. So I wanted to do a Q&A episode for the 10th episode. Probably every 10 episodes or so, I'll probably do a Q&A just so you can get your questions answered. So in the future, if you have questions, send me an email or message me or DM me on social media and ask your questions. So today there's a couple of questions. If we have time, I'll do a third one, but a couple of questions related to intermittent fasting and also juicing and smoothies. So um, stick around if you have a particular interest in those. So before we get started with that, I want to throw out the caveat that what we are going to talk about is not medical advice. It is simply my opinion. If you have specific situations where you uh, maybe think that what we're talking about has an impact on you or could be a solution for you, please talk to your doctor or your medical professional or nutrition professional regarding your specific needs before you take that on. Because a lot of times there are situations or conditions or other kind of contraindicative things going on that don't necessarily get mentioned, but could be have a huge impact on you. So definitely check with your doctor or your providers before you try anything, especially the things that we talk about. So just wanted to throw that disclaimer out there. All right, question number one. I've actually gotten this question, uh, I think it was four times in the past week. So I'm like, let's talk about this. The question is, what do you think about intermittent fasting? So I love this question. I love that, um, well, we'll talk about it. When it comes to intermittent fasting, there are a lot of options. And what I'm gonna talk about is my opinion, since that's what this person asked for. So your opinion may differ, other people's opinions may differ, you may hear other things, but this is simply my opinion based on the research that I've done and my professional opinion. Like with anything, there are pros and cons. And I want to talk more about some of these. First of all, fasting has been around for centuries. It's not new. It seems like it came out of nowhere with the term intermittent fasting, but it's been around for centuries. It's practiced for cultural, spiritual, other religious type reasons. And I would say a lot more people currently though are using it for weight loss, which is where my red flag goes up a little bit. For the record, I'm not necessarily against it, but it certainly depends on the circumstances as to why you want to do this in the first place. Let's talk 
quickly about some of the pros. The research that I've done on it so far, as of the date of this recording, is mixed. <laughs> I'm sure you probably kind of assume that. It's mixed. There are some populations where the research has shown evidence of intermittent fasting being beneficial. Some of them are surprising, so I'm gonna go over a few of those populations. So the main one that has been researched the most, or I, I don't know if it's the most, but a lot of the research that I've seen has been around people with diabetes and high blood pressure in terms of intermittent fasting. It actually has shown when is done correctly is the key word there, when done correctly. It's been shown to help stabilize blood sugars but not in all people with diabetes. That's where the mixed part comes in. If your sugars are uncontrolled or you were recently diagnosed and you're still kind of learning how to manage your sugars and what impacts it, it may not be right for you yet or, or ever, but it may not be something to immediately jump into once you get that diagnosis of diabetes. Also, those people who have type 1 diabetes are encouraged not to participate in intermittent fasting. If your doctor recommends it for you, that's one thing. But uh, from what I've seen, uh, it's not recommended for type 1 diabetes. Other people, let's kind of go down this track for, for a second. Other people who it's not recommended for would be women who are pregnant or nursing, children or teens, and those with a history of an active, or either if you have a history of or if you have an active eating disorder. Um, so definitely not recommended for those populations. One surprising population, though, where it is starting to be studied more are postmenopausal women. I actually did a research project on this, and, and postmenopausal women, there are quite a few studies that support intermittent fasting for that population, specifically uh, in terms of inflammation and um, a couple of other like hormonal balancing type of factors. But again, when done correctly, which we'll, we'll kind of go over in a second what that could mean. A few short-term studies are um, also showing a benefit, um, you know, with with the menopause, postmenopausal women. Like they're, all the studies that I've seen are short-term. They're not necessarily long-term yet. So again, uh, long-term studies are needed in, in multiple areas for intermittent fasting. So let's kind of break this down and talk a little bit about what intermittent, intermittent fasting actually is. There are many forms. You've probably seen some of these. You can probably Google some and have a few pop up. The most common is what's called the 16-8, where you fast for 16 hours and you eat for eight, or you, have, you eat within an eight-hour window. Another way of doing this is called the 5-2, which is where five days you eat kind of a normal, balanced, healthy diet, and for two days you practice a restricted diet of 500 calories or lower each day. So for two days, it's like 500 calories or less, and then the five days of the rest of the five days of the week, it's a normal, balanced diet. Some people also fast for 24 hours or longer, but a lot of times this is more related to and tied to like religious practices, so it's a little bit different. Um, here, because it was asked for, here is my very unfiltered opinion on intermittent fasting. I think what happens when people start intermittent fasting is that instead of it being what it's supposed to be, which is intermittent, they take it on as a lifestyle, which at that point would be considered just fasting. Or another way of saying that is disordered eating. 
It's one thing if it's done for a week or so for or, or for a month for religious purposes, but when it's done every day as a way to control your weight, that's disordered eating. And I want a quick sidebar conversation. There is a difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Disordered eating could be more just patterns that are unhealthy, whereas an eating disorder is a classified conditions, things like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, those types of things are an actual diagnosis. So coming at it from a nutrition perspective, let's look at the 16-8 plan, for example. So you fast for 16 hours, which most of which is actually done overnight when you're sleeping, but then you allow yourself an eight-hour window to take in food. If you eat perfectly in that eight hours, meaning you meet the quota for every vitamin, mineral, fat, protein, fiber, carb, et cetera, for your body to function properly, you can do all that in that eight eight hour window. Awesome, great, what are we even talking about? But how many people do you think are able to actually do that? With busy lifestyles, schedules, families, you know, all the other things that get in the way, most of us can't even eat and get the amount of nutrients we need in in a 24 hour window. So reducing that to eight hours, it puts a lot of pressure on you as a person to ensure you are getting all of your nutrients, but it also puts a lot of pressure on your digestive system to work in a shorter period of time versus when it's spaced out over the course of the day. Just something to think about. Another reason why I'm not a fan of intermittent fasting is that when a lot of people fast, They also tend to not drink water, which then leads to dehydration. Again, is this something that is a deal breaker? No. Could you focus on making sure you still get water if you choose to participate in intermittent fasting? Of course, but it's something to consider and something that oftentimes goes unthought of that um, you're fasting, meaning like, oh, I can't have anything, but you still need to drink your water. There's also the psychological factor of restriction. When many of us restrict something, anything, whatever it is, it can lead to binges later on. Most of the time, these binges are on sugars and carbs, which as we learned in episodes seven and eight are because of glucose dysregulation and stress hormones. So let's talk about that for a second too. Fasting is a stressor on your body. It is. Our brain doesn't know the difference between an intentional fast versus a famine. Our brain is set for survival. Our hormones are set for survival. It doesn't, it doesn't happen, of course, to everybody, but intermittent fasting can lead to things like binges and overeating and sugar cravings down the road. When it comes to your body being under stress, this now impacts your stress hormones like cortisol, which can lead to other hormones being thrown off. And and it's just a cascade of, of things that can happen. And again, I'm being very cautious with what I'm saying. It's not guaranteed to happen. It can. And like with any diet that someone wants to try. So if this person came to me and they did and said, what do you think about intermittent fasting? I always ask them, what's your end game? Will you be intermittent fasting for the rest of your life? Will you stop after a month? Like, what's the plan? Because intermittent fasting should not be a lifestyle. I will, I will back that up. It should not be a lifestyle. 
if it's a lifestyle, it's not intermittent. That's just plain fasting and restricting your food. So that is kind of my long-winded answer on what do you think about intermittent fasting. I personally do not do it. I personally don't recommend it for quite a few people. Although as research comes out with certain populations, I am open to obtaining the research and and considering it for other people and, and talking more about how it can benefit it based on what the research is showing. So, all right. So that is my two cents on intermittent fasting. The second question that I received was what's the difference between juicing and smoothies is one better than the other. So kind of a two part question there. Oh, I love this question so much. Um, of course, I think I got on my soapbox a few times on juicing so or, or juice in general. So let's let's talk about the main difference between juicing and smoothies. Juicing is when you remove everything from the fruit or vegetable except for the watery component of it. And with that watery component, you do get some vitamins and minerals and things like that. With smoothies, you're blending the entire vegetable or fruit and you're getting all components of that, meaning the fiber and all the nutrients and all of that. So is one better than the other? I subscribe to the notion that yes, smoothies are by far better than juicing. And there's a couple of factors to this. One, like we talked about in previous episodes, juice, just plain juice has no fiber in it. And what it has in it is a little bit of, you know, vitamins and minerals, but what it has most of is fructose and fructose, as we learned, goes straight to your liver and is processed in your liver. And it is now being linked to a lot of things, uh, a a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but certain conditions like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it can cause a lot of inflammation and kind of some issues there. Um, So it is, and it by meaning fructose, not juice, but fructose, which is very heavily concentrated in juice. Um, So I personally, but when you have the smoothie that has all the components of the whole food, like the fiber specifically, the fiber helps to protect your liver and protect your body from the effects of the fructose. So if you were to have the choice between juicing and smoothies, I would hands down every time pick smoothie. Also, you have a lot more say in the components that you can add to a smoothie. So you can add protein. You can't add protein to juice. I mean, I'm sure somebody's probably figured out a way to like artificially add protein to juice. But when you're juicing something, you're not thinking, oh, I should also get some healthy fats and proteins in here. No, you're just thinking about, oh, I'm getting so much vitamin C and all these other things. Yeah, vitamin C is not hard to get. Um, Anyways, but looking at smoothies, you can make it more of a hearty and balanced and blood sugar stabilizing food or or meal or snack versus a juicing, which will have a huge impact on your blood sugar, uh, which as we've learned in in like the inflammation episode, uh, it's a big trigger for inflammation. So it can actually lead to inflammatory conditions because of the sugars in there, because the sugars are being spiked when you consume juice, it it jacks your blood sugars up 
And unless you have things to help balance it and stabilize it, like healthy fats and proteins, it can be an issue. So I am 100% on board with smoothies. I am a smoothie fanatic. I even created the ultimate smoothie guide, <laughs> which is a, a, a guide that talks all about the benefits of smoothies. It also talks about the four components that every smoothie needs to have to keep it balanced. And then it includes 20 plus recipes of smoothies that I have tried and love. So I will post the link to that in the show notes below, wherever you've clicked on this to listen to it. Check that out. I am uh, I'm a big fan of smoothies and I hope it comes out in that guide how much I adore them. Um, also, in terms of kids, I get this question a lot too, which is actually in the Ultimate Smoothie Guide, the Frequently Asked Questions is, can I give kids smoothies? Absolutely, you can give a kid a smoothie. Absolutely. They need to learn about balancing your blood sugars as well. And when you're just giving them juice, if you're just giving them orange juice, or if you're just giving them a glass of, I don't know, apple juice or whatever, like we talked about, it is going straight to their livers. It's causing inflammation. When the livers aren't functioning properly for whatever reason, in this case, too much fructose, it causes brain issues. It causes uh, mood issues. It causes uh, hormone imbalances. It causes digestive issues. I could go on and on and I will not, I will save you that. Um, but yes, if I were to give my kid anything, smoothie is hundred percent and kids love making them. They love putting stuff together in our house. When I say, Hey, who wants a smoothie? Three out of four, four out of the four kids, hundred percent will say, Oh, I do me, 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 me. I do. And they want to help make it. They like to blend it up. We take the frozen fruits and veggies out of the freezer and we blend them up and they adore it. So anyways, if you have more questions on how to make a proper smoothie and what components to include in them to make them beneficial, check out that ultimate smoothie guide. I, um, I'm hoping that that is going to be helpful for you. I'm, I'm sure it will be. So, all right. I wanted to keep this episode under about 20 minutes or so approaching that time. So I will save the other questions for, well, actually I'm going to go over this last question because this one comes up so many, so many times. And I really love setting the record straight for people. The question that it that I received was, how is it possible that I gained two pounds overnight? So if you've ever been there where maybe you weigh yourself, which again, don't weigh yourself every day, but if you weigh yourself one day and then you weigh yourself the next and you're up two pounds or five pounds or whatever it is, and you think, oh my gosh, how did I gain two pounds or five pounds overnight? You didn't. <laughs> okay, like you did not. And, and what we what we associate that with is fat mass gain. You did not gain two to five pounds of fat mass overnight. I don't care what you had the day before. You didn't. What you are seeing on the scale, which is one of many reasons why I think the scale should be outlawed, but what you are likely seeing is your body's reaction to whatever you ate or drank the previous day. For example, if you went and had a lot of um, sugar or a lot of sodium or drinks or whatever the case is, your body is inflamed. It's inflamed. It's responding to the foods and the components that you had the night before, the day before. It's inflamed. What does inflammation do? Swells. It swells things. Think about when you bump your head, what happens? It swells. It's inflamed. It's inflammatory. So your body is holding on to different fluids and it's swelling and there's an immune response and all of these things happen based on what you had the night before. And that shows up on the scale. 
very, very similar to the fact that I've been there too, where you start a new workout routine, or maybe it's like you're starting to lift weights or you're starting to run again or whatever. And let's say you are doing awesome with your fitness routine that first week or two. And you're like, oh, surely I'm down like 30 pounds. You know, no, I'm just kidding. But like, surely I'm going to see some sort of, of progress on the scale. And you go and weigh yourself and you're up. The scale is increased and you're like, what, what in the world? Okay. I'm swearing off exercise from now on. You know, we've all kind of been there, but let's look at what that likely is. It is likely your body's response to new tissue being built, meaning muscle tissue, which is the point of exercise. Um, but it's also inflamed. Your body is sore. Your body's, you know, likely inflamed. Your muscle tissue is inflamed. It's building and all that stuff. And that shows up on the scale. Is it fat mass? No, most likely it is not. Very similar to when on the reverse of that, when let's say you have the flu for like three days and you have nothing but like chicken broth or whatever you can manage to keep down and you weigh yourself and you're down like 10 pounds. Is that 10 pounds of fat? No, of course not. If anything, it's most likely, of course, as we all probably assume it's water weight, but what it most likely is Muscle tissue, you've probably lost some muscle mass because of the fact that you weren't eating and restoring and getting enough protein in those days that you were sick or um, exercising or anything like that. You're, you're likely down muscle tissue because your body needs amino acids regardless of how it gets it. Your body still needs them. So if it's not being supplied through diet or food or drink or whatever, it will break down its own tissue. It'll catabolize its own tissue because it still needs those uh, amino acids. So it's most likely more muscle tissue than it is fat tissue or anything else. And um, which is why people tend, when they start to eat, they start to feel better, they start to eat normally again, they start to see an increase, not only the seven or whatever pounds that they lost when they had the flu, but they tend to see a little bit even more kind of come on. And that's your body doing like, the, it's swinging back. It's, it's kind of like trying to reset itself. But the fact that your Muscle mass might have gone down a little bit as well. Muscle tissue is metabolically active. It's very metabolically active. It's constantly trying to restore and regenerate itself, which takes calories, which is why protein and muscle mass is so linked to metabolism. So when it goes down, the metabolism can take a little bit of a hit. So you tend to see that until it'll, it'll get corrected. It'll get balanced out again, of course, but it, that's what we are seeing when we look at the scale. Now, does that show on the scale when you step on it? No, <laughs> what only shows is the number. Your distribution against gravity is all that it shows. But what we as humans, and especially, I'm gonna pick on us ladies for a second, especially us women, we put and attach emotions to that. So when you see it up or down or wherever, we have a feeling, we have an emotion that is attached to that, that we tend to reflect on internally. And then that can set the tone. It sets the tone for the day. So again, I, I don't want to get on my, my weigh yourself soapbox or don't weigh yourself soapbox, I should say. But when somebody asks, how is it possible that I gained two pounds overnight? I would respond with, it's not. You, you didn't gain two pounds of fat overnight. You, you most likely did not. The amount of calories and, and all of that that is required to actually do that in one, you know, in a in a eight hour time span is not happening. It's just not. So anyways, that was, hopefully those three questions were helpful. If you have 
questions that you want me to go over in my next Q&A or just on social media, please send them my way. I want to, I have a whole list of topics that I am wanting to talk about, but I want to talk about what you want to hear about and what you want to learn about. So please send those my way. I am so eager to get more topics that will be beneficial not only to you, but everyone else listening. Because a lot of times, if you're in any type of industry where you are working with populations of people, you hear the same things over and over again, which shows you that it's important to a lot of different people. So when I hear the same questions over and over again, that gives me a clue as to what is valuable information for you to hear. So uh, if you have a question, I love hearing them. No matter what the question is, I am happy to address it. And even if I don't address it on the podcast, I will send you back some information in email or however you uh, outreach me. I'm happy to do that. So as always, too, a reminder, I do free consultations. So if any of the things that we talked about kind of triggered something in you where you're like, I have a question, though, about this in my specific situation, you can schedule a free 20 minute consultation with me. The link is below in the show notes or always on the Food Factor Nutrition website. Just click chat now and I am happy to schedule that with you. So have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. I hope you are doing marvelous and staying healthy and let me know if I can help in any way. Bye.